This episode has generated quite a bit of interest. However, I've received word that some listeners are having trouble downloading it, and I want to thank them for contacting me by going to my website, davidartman.net, to leave me a message. So here is the episode reposted. Hopefully this will solve all the technical problems. Also, all of my podcast episodes can be directly accessed on the podcast page of the davidartman.net website. All right, so here we go again with Robin Perry. You're listening to Grace Saves All the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. In this episode, we are joined by Robin Perry, an author, scholar, minister, and publisher whose work I very much admire and highly recommend. The Reverend Dr. Robin Perry is a leading voice in the recovery of an orthodox, Trinitarian, gospel-focused, Christian universalism. Robin's PhD is from the University of Gloucestershire, and he has recently been ordained as a priest in the Church of England. For all who are concerned that a universalist theology will lead people out of the Christian faith, Robin is a prime example of one whose belief in God's ultimate salvation of all in Christ has actually reinforced his commitment both to orthodoxy and to the church. He is perhaps most well-known for his book, The Evangelical Universalist, written under the pen name of Gregory MacDonald. He has also written and edited a number of books which are relevant to the discussion of Christian universalism. I am especially enthusiastic about Robin's work with patristic scholar Ilaria Romelli on the series entitled A Larger Hope, Volume 1 of that series is by Dr. Romelli and is entitled Universal Salvation from Christian Beginnings to Julian of Norwich. Robin's work in bringing this volume to the public is important because it makes Romelli's enormous academic scholarship accessible to the average person. Volume 2 of the A Larger Hope series is mainly the work of Robin Perry with contributions from Ilaria Romelli, and it's entitled Universal Salvation from the Reformation to the 19th Century. Robin has a blog entitled Theological Scribbles, and you can find many of his thoughts now publicly archived online at the Evangelical Universalist Forum. Since 2001, he has worked in publishing, starting with Paternoster Press, and since 2010 with Whitfenstock. Welcome, Reverend Dr. Robin Perry, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, Dr. Perry, much of your scholarship has centered on showing how there is actually an orthodox version of Christian universalism with roots in Scripture, and in the early centuries of the Church, and even advocated by early Christian notables such as Gregory of Nyssa, whom the Seventh General Council of the Church named the Father of the Fathers. And your work in establishing the case for an orthodox Christian universalism has received some recognition and even acceptance in some evangelical circles. For instance, Preston Sprinkle, the editor of Zondervan's second edition of Four Views on Hell, in the book's conclusion, commented about your essay in that volume on the Christian Universalist approach, stating that you had brought what is often assumed to be a heretical view into the arena of biblical exegesis and theology. Sprinkle even went on to say that Christians can no longer dismiss your view as 
unorthodox. So, Dr. Perry, well done. How did that make you feel for your essay in the second edition of Four Views on Hell to have been received so well? Um, well, I'll be honest, I was rather delighted uh, that someone is, who I admired so much uh, as Preston uh, thought so highly of it. You know, I just thought, oh, good. Someone who's really open-minded and yet conservative. Mm-hmm. I liked it. So I was very pleased about that. I consulted that book in my Doctor of Ministry paper in 1996, uh, which touched on the three views of hell. And at that time, there was not a universalist option no. in, in, that, in that book. And back in 1996, I could, you could have knocked me over with a feather if you would have told me in 20 years there would be a universalist approach included in a book from Zondervan. Uh, yeah, yeah. I showing, was yeah. showing, yeah, showing that that's that, that and this is a this is a, a book publisher that a lot of evangelicals read and take seriously. So for them to turn to you, especially, and then for you to have written, I think such a nice piece, uh, I think was an important moment. Yeah, I was. Um, they were wonderful. I mean, I, I've always loved Zondervan; they're fantastic. But I was surprised that they were willing to consider this and. Uh, and, and delighted that they were willing to include it and that Preston was so um, positive about at least its orthodoxy, even though he did say he didn't agree with it. Well, I, I remember when that came out, I thought, because where I live, I live in the Ozarks in the center of the United States and in a rather conservative area. And uh, evangelicalism is a, a prominent, the most prominent form of Christianity, as we might say, in these parts. And so uh, I could say to people who were con- maybe con- a little concerned about my thoughts, I could say, you know, listen, just pick up a copy of uh, Zondervan's Four Views on Hell and just look through there. And I think you can see how my view, uh, look look for the essay by Robin Perry, and you can see how my view contrasts with the other views. Mm-hmm. And so that mm-hmm. really made it, that, that made it very helpful for me to be able to give people a resource mm-hmm. from Zondervan which was a resource that they a resource that they knew about. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. It gave it a bit more I mean and some people would be cross for this very reason. It gave it um a bit more acceptability. Right. Well, so in a way I thought okay, whew, I'm 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 out of the woods. I can tell people, look, the Christianity that uh, that I'm practicing is an ancient and orthodox form of Christianity. We we've kind of forgotten about it. In Western, in the Western Church, for a number of historical reasons, but if you're thinking about Christianity, this is a form of Christianity you might, con, you know, you can consider, and this is a legitimate Christian spirituality. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, okay, we're in the clear. Uh, well, then in 2018, Dr. Michael McClyman, an evangelical professor of church history, published a massive two-volume work entitled "The Devil's Redemption," a rather ominous title there. And it refutes the notion that Christian universalism is a legitimate expression of the Christian faith. Now, in response to Dr. McClyman, also in 2018, you published an article which ended up appearing in the journal Clarion entitled, A Response to Michael McClyman's Theological Critique of Universalism. And so what I'd like to do is to begin this interview by giving you a chance to talk through how you addressed McClyman's critique of Christian universalism. So any thoughts on this before we get started? Um, 
Well, I'd been anticipating Michael's book for some while. Uh, I knew that it was coming and I knew that I couldn't ignore it because it was going to be a very significant intervention into the discussion we were having. And in fact, Michael asked me to write an endorsement for it, uh, which I which I was happy to do and I'd said I was willing to do, but the publisher never actually sent me a pre-publication copy to look at, so... It never okay. ended up with my, never ended up with my endorsement on it. Um, but as soon as it came out, I read it, and um, I, I like and respect Michael, and and consider him. I hold him in in high regard as a scholar. Um, although I will have some things to say about the argument of the book uh, a, a little later in our discussion, I'm sure. But it's a major piece of scholarship and there's huge amounts of research uh, that he did and put into it. And it's a very broad and deep book. And there are lots of parts of it that I would say I was completely on board with and I agreed with. I, I, so I want to affirm Michael as a gifted and good hearted Christian man who's got a heart for the gospel and the people of God and that he's written an important book that can't be ignored, even though I do think he is uh, completely wrong on his core thesis. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get to that core thesis then, because in your article, you summarize McClyman's core thesis this way. You write, the central thesis at the heart of McClyman's The Devil's Redemption is very simple. Universalism does not arise from biblical or Christian theological instincts, but is an alien import that first emerged and flourished in heretical Gnostic sects and was subsequently planted into Christianity by origin. The modern revival of universalism from the late 17th century onwards similarly drank deeply from the wells of esotericism, especially from the poisoned well of Jacob Baon, whose heterodox theology lies somewhere behind many, perhaps most, modern versions of universalism. Thus, despite the Christian language with which universal salvation dresses itself, in an attempt to appear at home in the church, its origins and underlying theological structure are, according to McClymond, antithetical to Orthodox Christianity. So let me ask you this question, Dr. Perry, is universalism really just a form of esoteric mysticism in disguise? <laughs> uh, well, that really is the question, isn't it? Um, Michael's theological critique of universalism is basically built on two pillars. And the, although there's a huge, massive two-volume work, there are fundamentally two pillars. And basically they are these, that, that Christian universalism looks superficially Christian, but deep down its roots lie in Gnosticism in the ancient world and in esotericism, uh, in which we'll, we can say a bit more about later, uh, in the early modern period. And, and out of those two pillars he builds on top of it, this whole theological criticism of universalism that is not really deeply and integrally Christian, but it's really a pagan a pagan thing. So everything hangs then on those two historical claims. And my basic problem uh, with the book is this. I think that Michael is wrong about both of them. And because of that, then the whole theological roof that he's built on top of the pillars collapses. It just can't hold up the weight. Um, I'm not an expert on patristics, so I don't think I will say loads and loads about patristics. Elaria Romelli in the book you mentioned earlier, and in her massive 900-page book on the Christian doctrine of apocatastasis, uh, addresses this 
issue as to whether universalism was an authentically Christian view in the ancient world. And she argues, contrary to what Michael argues, that Origen didn't get his universalism from Gnosticism. In fact, Mm -hmm. the Gnostics weren't universalists. Um, Gnostics were a whole group, for those of people listening who don't know, Gnostics were a a wide-ranging and varied group of different sects um, that overlapped with early Christianity um, that that are quite difficult to describe and categorize, but they were generally regarded, they certainly came to be regarded as heretical uh, by the Orthodox Church. Um, All sorts of ideas like that material and matter and bodies were bad and had to be got beyond and transcended, all of this kind of stuff. So Origen wasn't inspired by Gnostics. He didn't get his universalism from Gnosticism because Gnostics didn't believe in universalism. Origen was, in fact, a very fierce critic of Gnostics and took them to task for various issues, and he regarded them as heretics to be um, resisted in the name of uh, Orthodox Christianity. Um, So where did he get his universalism from? Well, Origen argued for it on the basis of scripture, principally, and on the basis of themes that come out of earlier Christian writers like um, Clement and Irenaeus and some of the Petrine materials uh, that were circulating in early first, second, second, third century Christianity. By Petrine, so, mater- by Petrine materials, you just mean those documents, those letters in the New Testament attributed to the Apostle Paul? No, I'm, I'm talking about um, some subsequent writings that were attributed to Peter. Oh, okay. um, but weren't by Peter, but there was a tradition of of sort of writing oh, in Petrine, the name. Yeah. Some of those texts, like the Apocalypse of Peter, um, include accounts of, and there was this, there's all sorts of texts. I think Ilaria looks at nine Orthodox or proto-Orthodox texts from the second and third century in which you can see people praying for those in the lake of fire and so that they would be brought out of the lake of fire and, and, and they come out. So there is a sort of post-damnation salvation, at least possible, mm-hmm. uh, in those texts, which is something that, you know, of course, we're so used to saying, well, when you die, that's it, you get no more chances. And it's just, to us, it just seems obviously true that that's the case. But clearly it wasn't so obvious for a lot of early Christians uh, because you do get these strands of... Um, people praying for the redemption of those in uh, post-mortem punishment and Jesus inviting them to do so. Mm-hmm. And in that and in that world, there were uh, writings that didn't make it into our New Testament that we have today, but that was before there was a, a kind of a closed canon. And so these were influential Christian writings uh, of oh, their yeah. day. That's right. And a lot of these writings, I mean, for example, writings that you'd find in the collection now called the Apostolic Fathers, they're not they're not in the Bible because they're not heretical. They just weren't considered to be um, early enough or apostolic uh, by apostles and so on. So they didn't get into the Bible, but they were still considered useful and worth reading. So early Christian Orthodox or proto-Orthodox um, writers would would regularly refer to these texts because they were seen as being part of uh, this continuous tradition of fidelity to the gospel. And among those texts are ones with this tradition. So Origen sort of is drawing on these kinds of threads 
And it's from that that he constructs his um, his Christian universalism. And in fact, Ilaria argues, and I think this is a very interesting thesis, and she argues it very carefully, although I don't know that you can demonstrate it conclusively because our evidence of the early church is so sparse. But she argues that, in fact, the very first universalists were Christians. Um, and subsequent universalists, some um, Gnostics did subsequently get a bit more like universalism, but they got that from the Christians, right. uh, not the other way around, which is uh, what Michael is arguing. So I think on the patristic front, people like Ilaria and other patristic scholars are arguing quite differently to the thesis which Michael is defending, which, to be fair to him, um, is what used to be the mainstream understanding of the situation. Uh, right. But things, things, and he's aware of this, and he's aware that he's sort of out of step with the tre trends in patristic scholarship. But he still wants to um, defend that older uh, view. Well, one of the things about Christian universalism that that is controversial is this. We'll talk about this probably some more. Uh, is about what happens at the very end. You know, talking about the lake of fire and eschatology. But mm -hmm. then, but then, uh, McClyman. Um, from a climate, he's concerned that about what Christian universalism does to the beginning of the story. Mm -hmm. And from a climate's point of view, uh, universalism demands pre-existence of souls. And he makes a big point out of that. Mm -hmm. But you can, but you counter with the assertion that pre-existence of souls is not a necessary component of Christian universalism. And you point to Gregory of Nyssa as an example of this. So could you say some more about that? Yes. So perhaps I need to explain where Michael's coming from on, on this issue, because, of course, the church um, came to reject the idea of the pre-existence of souls. It's not considered a, a legitimate um, Orthodox Christian view. And for Michael, universalism requires it. And that's because Michael thinks that universalism arises from Gnosticism. And in Gnosticism, you have this well, in some of the Gnostic sects, you have what might look like and what can be construed as a story in which everything begins with unity and everything is one with God. And then in in creation, it's like you get all this diversity and all the souls and things come out from God and redemption is about everything being brought back and unified with God again. And, and of course, the Christian view is creation, fall and redemption, which is overlaps with that view of unity and diversity and unity again, but um, has significant differences. So Michael says, look, because univer universalism requires this view that everything begins with uni unity with God, so souls are already there in God, they pre-exist, and then they come out from God and r redemption is about the souls returning to God again, they have, because the souls really are, they have this divine spark there, they are um, part of God in a way. All, all, all our souls and all the souls of the animals and whatever, they're part of God and they should return to God, in, at least in this version of Gnosticism that he's constructed. So that's why he thinks pre-existent souls is essential to universalism. And, and of course, the chief person you could possibly use as an example of this is Origen, because it's certainly possible and has been traditionally the case that origin has been read as believing in and teaching the pre-existence of souls 
He certainly didn't believe in the pre-existence of disembodied souls, but I think the jury's out now. It's very contested among patristic scholars as to what Origen actually thought and taught about this subject. It's not clear, and I don't have a dog in that fight. So I won't get involved in that debate. I'll let the people who are experts thrash that one out. But what I will say is this. Um, Gregory of Nyssa, who is a very important saint, uh, the father of the fathers, I think he said, Mm -hmm. uh, very instrumental in the construction of what became Christian orthodoxy. Um, He emphatically rejected the pre-existence of souls and emphatically affirmed universalism. And he didn't think those two things went together. He thought you could be a universalist. That's not his word, but you could believe that God would restore all souls without having to believe that those souls pre-exist. And Michael thinks, well, he just wasn't consistent with his own view. But that's just because Michael's trying to squeeze um, Gregory into this idea that Christian universalism has these Gnostic roots. And so he says, well, Obviously, Gregory hasn't appreciated this, but I think Michael's just wrong because it's quite clear that Gregory's views are perfectly consistent. All that you need to be a universalist is to say that God created all souls, that God loves all souls and wants to restore all souls. You don't need any more than that. You don't need to have these souls pre-existing creation or, or whatever. It's just completely not essential. And most Universalists in Christian history have not believed in the pre-existence of souls. Those who do are a very small minority. So I just think, again, I think he's wrong about that, and demonstrably so, because we can show that most Christian universalists didn't believe that, and we can't give any good reasons as to why they have to, apart from his theory that they have to, which is based on a misunderstanding of the origins of Christian universalism. So for McClymond, the we talked about these two pillars of his argument. The first is is how it arises uh, from Gnostic ideas about divine sparks having to return, who are actually a part of God having to return to God, uh, and we've just discussed that. But McClymond then, uh, when he jumps to um, sort of the modern uh, the modern time period. Um, says that universalism has something to do with uh, the thoughts of this mystic named, a German mystic named Jacob Bohm, B-O-H-M-E. And the idea that Bohm had was that there was this balance of light and dark inside of God that was at tension with each other. And it was that inner divine drama that then resulted in in creation. And, uh, and, and so what... And when Bohm wrote about that, uh, and that that his writings were influential in German philosophy, he says that what what happened there was that was what sparked. It, it's almost like we had gotten rid of universalism, and then this Jacob Bohm character came up with his mystical, esoteric writings, and that that caught the idea of certain Christians. And then, they, and then, 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 then now we've got. Oh no! Now we've got Christian universalism uh, mm-hmm. again. Yeah. Yes, and and what Michael has very helpfully done is he's shown how influential um, um, Yakov Burma is, is. Is how I 
say his name. Burma. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think Jacob, I, I don't know how people would have pronounced it in England in the past because he was very popular in England as well. But um, Yakov Burma was this sort of German, Lutheran background cobbler guy, um, uneducated, but he had this mystical experience uh, and became, and his writings, he wrote down these sort of mystical, philosophical, theological, biblical reflections, and they became extremely influential um, in all sorts of areas and in all sorts of ways. He's one of the most famous people you've never heard of. I mean, mm -hmm. one of the most influential people you've never heard of because he, he had a huge impact. And um, what Michael shows is that a lot of universalists after his time were, were in one, to one degree or another very influenced by him. Um, and that's, that is, I think, interesting and a helpful contribution to the discussion. Um, where I think Michael goes wrong is that he argues that, in fact, it was this, it wasn't scripture and it wasn't tradition, but it was this guy's mystical experience, which was very um, Gnostic-like. And so when he talks about when we talk, he talks about esotericism, he's talking about a sort of modern kind of versions of uh, these ancient ideas, which had the same basic plot mm -hmm. as he sets it out of everything beginning in unity, and then from this all the diversity that we see around us, but everything will be reabsorbed into God. And I think. So basically what he's arguing is that the revival of universalism in the 17th century and afterwards is, is also not Christian at its root, but is grounded in some dodgy religious experiences that corrupt Christian theology. And he fears that this corrupts Christianity and the church from within. Um, and I think it's important to see why Michael is mistaken about this. And there's a few thoughts about Yakov Berman that I think we need to be clear. You don't need to understand his views to understand because he's very difficult to understand. He's um, quite murky, and lots of people have come up with different interpretations of what he was talking about. But mm -hmm. one thing we can be clear about is that he wasn't a universalist. In fact, he believed in eternal hell. So the first thing that strikes me as odd when I when I read Michael's book, I thought, well, that's strange that you would make a guy who believed in eternal hell to be the source of modern universalism. Uh, because, as you say, um, God has this perfect balance of wrath and love, and light and darkness in himself, and his goodness is constituted by maintaining this balance. And so his theology, not only didn't he believe in hell, um, his theology seems, as, as he developed it, to be incompatible with, with universalism. He believed in hell, but his theology is incompatible with universalism um, because that's, you know, this balance of, wrath and love leads to this idea of eternal hell and eternal heaven. And so it seems it makes perfect sense. So why on earth would you think this is where universalism came from? Mm -hmm. So Michael shows correctly that lots of universalists used him. But what he doesn't make clear is that they used him for all sorts of ideas, but one idea that they never used him for was universalism. That wasn't one of the ideas they got from him. In fact, um, it was introduced into his philosophical system by a woman called Jane Lead, uh, an English uh, follower of Yakov Burma. And she had a religious experience in which she felt God had revealed to her that all would be restored at the end. And she was very conscious that, that 
this wasn't something Yakov Burma had taught. And she even sort of thinks, she even discusses, you know, well, why, if he was, God had revealed so much to him, why didn't God reveal this to him? You know, and she argued, well, it wasn't the time for him to see this. Now it is the time for us to understand this. Mm -hmm. She introduced this universal salvation idea into his system. And one of the um, consequences of that was um, a lot of the way people read Yakov Burma after that was through the universalist glasses that Jane Lead brought. So through various German pietistic groups who were influenced by Jane Lead, they were really into Jakob Burma and they became universalists and they modified his theology. And so in their theology, God is no longer this perfect balance of wrath and love, uh, but God is pure love. God is light and in him there is no darkness. Uh, God is love and not wrath. You see this in William Law, uh, English uh, um, Christian leader and teacher who was influential on the Wesleys and among others. Uh, he was a big fan of Burm, but uh, he modified the theology so that God was just love. And uh, he was a universalist, but you had to change Burma's theology to get the universalism. And and what Michael, I think one of the mistakes Michael makes in the book is he looks at lots of Christian universalists and he says, look, they quote from Burma there and this one quotes from Burma here. So clearly they're getting it from him. But in fact, um, they're a mixed bag, you know, these folk he's quoting. Some of them, like Gerard Wynne Stanley, uh, wasn't, hadn't read Burma at all, so he can't really be described as being influenced mm -hmm. by it. Um, some of them, like William Law, were big fans, but they modified him in the way I explained. Um, some of them, like Peter Sterry or L. Hannon Winchester, uh, were just marginally inspired by him. Uh, but he wasn't sort of pivotal to their system and certainly not to their universalism. If you read their texts, their universalism comes out of scripture. I mean, L. Hannon Winchester's a point. He's an 18th century Baptist revivalist preacher. And... Um, Michael quotes a sermon in which his very first universalist sermon in which there are some themes from the writings of Yakov Bohm. And that's the only thing Michael quotes from him. But if you read his voluminous writings, mm -hmm. uh, Elhan and Winchester, that sermon is completely out of sync with everything else. Everything else is just discussing script. Almost all of it is just discussing scripture and how scripture should be interpreted by those who consider it to be inspired by God and so on, and how that how it teaches universal salvation. And it doesn't sound anything like kind of esotericism. It sounds like mainstream evangelical discussion on scripture and how to make sense of it. So I think what Michael has done is um, given the impression that because this guy has been read by a lot of folk, um, they're getting their universalism from him, but they demonstrably weren't. Um, they got it from somewhere else entirely. They got it, for the most part, from Scripture. Well, another concern that McClyman raises is, um, you know, you're talking about how Jane Lee um, had this idea that God is love and, you know, complete love. and But, but what McClyman argues is he says that arguments that move from claims about divine love to assertions of universal salvation 
treat saving everyone as something God had to do, and this threatens God's freedom. So how do you respond to McClyman's concern about the freedom of God and how it relates to universal salvation? Yeah. Um, well, it depends what you mean by freedom. When I talk about divine freedom, I mean God's freedom to be God. So God is not constrained by anything or anyone outside of God. So God can do what God likes, but it's not a, some kind of arbitrary freedom. So, for example... Um, the book of Hebrews says uh, God cannot lie because God is truth, right? So it's not because God can't lie, but not because there's something outside of God compelling God to tell the truth. God can't lie because of who God is. So God is truth and as such can't lie. Um, but does that mean that God isn't free? Well, no, absolutely not, because God is absolutely free to be God's self. Um, think about the book of James, where God's, James says God can't be tempted. Is that a limit on God's freedom? Well, no. It just means that there's nothing that can lure God away from being God. Because as John says, God is light. There's no darkness in him at all. So does that mean that God can't choose darkness? Well, yeah. But that's a divine perfection, not a limitation on God. Because the thing we have to remember is here... Who is the biblical God? And the biblical God is love. God is just. And so talking about God freely choosing to be unjust or unloving doesn't make any sense. It's just empty words. God loves all God's creatures because of who God is. And God desires to reconcile all God's creatures because of who God is. And God's desire for justice arises from who God is. And God is unconstrained in being who God is. And that's what I mean when I talk about um, God being free. But the kind of freedom I think um, McClymond is wanting to argue for God is God's freedom to not love his creatures. But to my mind, that just sounds like somebody asking, saying that God has to have the freedom to not be God. I mean, and, and I think there's a certain amount of uh, double standards here. I mean, consider the way evangelicals think about God's justice, right? Could you imagine someone making this argument that, that you often hear about God's love, about God's justice? So um, you'd go, well, you can't go from arguments, you know, you can't move from an argument that claims about divine justice to assertions hold that of holding sinners to account is to treat sinners according to something like God has to do it. God has to be just. And that threatens God's freedom. But evangelicals are always saying things like that. They say God can't overlook sin. Okay, so is it God free? <laughs> is he not free if he can't overlook sin? Sure, he's free. But the divine freedom is not the freedom to act in ways incompatible with who God is. It's the freedom to be God. And the God that we believe in is the God who is in his very essence love well one of the uh one of mcclyman's strangest concerns about christian universalism from my point of view is that it leads to what he thinks of as an eclipse of grace i mean for me grace is no less grace if it leads to the salvation of all but for mcclyman he wrote what seemed to be all grace turned out on inspection to be no grace so what do you make of McClyman's concern that the salvation of all is incompatible with grace? Yes. So um, 
it's and this is a, one of his core theological points um, that that he wants to drive home. And actually, you know, I'd want to affirm with him, as I'm sure you would, as well as you do, the centrality of grace. And he um, he talks about grace having four characteristics. He says, for something to be grace, it has to be a gift. It has to be undeserved and not owed as a duty. It has to be something that's given freely and not necessitated. And it has to have a relational character that in, what it means it implies a response, a human response from God. So the idea then, I think Michael's concern is that if God has to show grace to a creature, then it's not grace because he has to do it. And grace has to be freely given. So what do I think about that? Well, even if he's right about that, um, what you said is quite correct. God can choose to give the gift of grace to everybody without it ceasing to be a gift of grace. So you could agree with uh, Michael on all of that stuff and say, well, God just chooses to give it to everyone. And that's grace, isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you can still be a universalist. But secondly, I think it's helpful. Um, we need to appreciate that God might have a reason to be gracious to me without meaning that I deserve his grace. So, for example, he might have a reason to be gracious to me because he loves me. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that grace isn't an undeserved gift. It doesn't mean that God owes me anything. It doesn't mean that I've earned grace or salvation or that I deserve it. I don't. Um, it is completely unmerited and unearned on my part. Um, nevertheless, it's still motivated on God's part by his love. God shows us grace because he loves us. Scripture is very clear that that's what motivates um, divine grace. And so consider this claim. Um, I would say that I'm confident that God will save me because he's created me in his image and he loves me. Now, that is in no way the same thing as saying God will save me because I deserve it on the basis of my works. It's a completely different thing. So I think actually Michael's four criteria of grace are correct and they don't pose a problem for universalism because it is a gift. It isn't deserved. God freely gives it and it has a, a relational character. It brings a response from us. One of the things that you also address is the concern that Michael McClyman um, has that he thinks that universalism has an epistemic problem because he believes that it cannot build a plausible case on scripture and tradition. So it's forced to fall back on a priori or theoretical rational arguments or on religious experiences. Um, so what are some of your thoughts about this concern? Um, yeah, well, I, I understand the concern, but I don't think it's right. Um, I, I, a large proportion of my book, The Evangelical Universalist, is an attempt to argue that a case can be made from Scripture. And um, I summarised that case in the essay you mentioned in Four Views, Four Views on Hell. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, just to, if, if I was to put it in a nutshell, it's 
it's to try and get beyond proof texting, just here's my verse that proves hell or here's my verse that proves universal salvation. And Michael and I are quite agreed that this is not the way that the discussion should go. So you have to find a way of looking at the whole scripture and the whole story of scripture and say, what's the best way of making sense of all of this stuff? And scripture tells us a story of creation, which is universalist. God creates all things. All things are from him and all things are for him. So God creates all of his creatures for him. Um, in Christ, God comes and represents all people. Um, in Christ, he dies for all people. And these are not exceptional claims. These are just ordinary Christian claims which are easily grounded in Scripture. Um, Christ was raised from the dead for those he represents, that is to say, human beings. Uh, and so, you know, you think, well, what's the end of the story? What kind of where's the trajectory going if God's creating all people for him? Uh, all of them have sinned, but in Christ, he deals with their sin. And where a sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. If Christ has been raised for everybody, where's that going? And it's going is heading towards universal reconciliation, which is precisely what we find in texts like uh, uh, Romans 5 or uh, Colossians 1. Um, and, and so I think there is a case to be made from Scripture. Obviously, we'd have, we could spend hours <laughs> debating right. and looking at it. But um, I also think he's wrong in that there's a case to be made from tradition because uh, we can show, and Elaria has shown, that in fact the universalist tradition was a lot uh, more significant in the early church than it's been given recognition for, credit for. Uh, and even some of those, like Athanasius, um, she argues, was a universalist, and I think she makes quite a good case for that. Uh, I was persuaded. So, um, and I think, in fact, one of the key reasons that drives a lot of people to universalism is it seems to be the best way of making sense of ordinary, everyday, orthodox Christian beliefs, you know, the idea that God created everyone and loves everyone. and stuff. These are ordinary beliefs, but they're difficult to hold together with a belief in hell. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's those Christian beliefs that often drive people towards universalism. And in a sense, what they're doing is drawing on elements in the tradition and trying to find a way of making the tradition work better. Um, there was a 19th century Anglican called Thomas Allen who his one of his core beefs with eternal hell he became a universalist he was a patristic scholar and he felt that actually the doctrine of eternal hell threatened the tradition orthodox tradition because it was like a cuckoo in the nest this wasn't his analogy it was mine but this was the idea it's sort of like a trojan horse so it sort of enters into christian theology but it doesn't fit and there's all sorts of ways people have tried to accommodate it but it either doesn't fit and it just sits there uncomfortably and we don't know what to do with it, or you try and make it fit by messing up your doctrine of God and making it so that God loves some people and not others and so on. So there's a very high price to pay for trying to squeeze a doctrine of eternal torment into um, Christianity, and arguably it's more of a threat to the tradition than universalism is. It's so I think of, he's wrong. I think, it, it, and I think that arguments from reason and experience are not, as he says, the real motivator of universalism. I think those things are reinforcing and supplementing arguments from scripture and tradition. It's kind of funny in that uh, McClyman is wanting to make the argument that universalism was smuggled into Christianity 
through various mm-hmm. paths like Gnosticism and esotericism. And then the, the universalists respond and say, well, maybe it was the doctrine of eternal torment that was smuggled into uh, Christianity that, you know, that it was it, this idea of this eternal torment was not something that was uh, widely believed in the early centuries of the church. No, I mean, I think, I, and there are those who argue that it wasn't there. I think it was there. I mean, I think you can find it certainly in the second century. Uh, but it certainly wasn't the Christian view. Uh, and and what makes it more difficult as we look at, and this is why it's, you have to be so careful when you're proof texting from early Christian texts, you can quote Origen talking about um, eternal punishment. You can quote Gregory of Nyssa talking about eternal punishment. They will all use that language, um, but they were universalists. And so when you see that language, we often go, well, we know what that means. Um, but they didn't use those phrases and biblical phrases um, like, you know, kolas and ionion, uh, eternal punishment, or however you'd want to translate that. Um, it's a biblical phrase, so they're happy to use the language, but they don't mean what we mean by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that McClellan argues is that, and this was a concern for Origen and others who have, and it's a concern for me too, is how do we as Christians handle the problem of evil? And so he says that it's really, that's what, whenever the world gets at its darkest, that's when universalism uh, arises. So what do you think about, uh, what do you think about that? He, I think McClyman argues that the traditional eternal torment doctrine actually handles the problem of even evil better. So do you have any reflections on, on, on that concern? Yeah, can you um, can you remember precisely why why he thought that it handled it better? No, I I can't remember that. I mean, it's a surprising claim, <laughs> to say the least. Um, I, just to to start with, I I think when it comes to why a god of love would allow some of the evil things that happen, I don't I don't think either of the views we're talking about can answer that, and I'm sure Michael would agree. Um, we can say things that might help and and mitigate the problem somewhat, but I think we can't give the answer and explain it. Um, so I don't think either view can adequately explain why God allows evil, but, you know, the traditional view, Michael's view, hasn't got anything helpful that it can advance that a universalist can't say as well. Well, apart from, well, we'll come to that. So free will theodicy, right? This is, God allows us freedom. This is one of the key arguments Christians have used uh, as to why God would allow evil. Well, yeah, okay, and a lot of traditionalists have used that argument, um, but so, so too have universalists. I mean, Origen, that is a pivotal part of his whole approach to evil and, and how God allows evil is his extensive um, defense of human free will. And, and another approach sometimes theologians talk about soul-making theodicies, that God allows evil because it can be a means through which God can use it to sort of shape us and purify us. And yes, uh, true, but universalists can use that just as much as a traditionalist can. In fact, you can use it better. I mean, John Hick, who defended the most famous recent version of a uh, soul-making theodicy, was a universalist. And um, 
he really thought that in the end evil could only um, be permissible if God eradicates it in the end. If God sort of keeps some keeps evil around in creation forever in some way, uh, then it's really hard to justify. Mm-hmm. And I think I think really then it seems to me that the traditional view actually makes the problem of evil considerably worse because on the universalist view, God eradicates evil. Um, particularly if evil is understood to be um, falling away from the goodness of God's creation. As as good things that God makes fall away from that goodness, uh, that's what evil is. It's like a corruption of creation. So something good is broken. So for as long as there remain broken creatures in creation, evil hasn't been eradicated, even if they've been locked up in prison, you know, in hell. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there's still evil there because they're still uh, broken and sinful and fallen away from God. So what you have is a system in which evil, uh, which is creation falling short of what God made it to be, is kept in existence literally forever. That doesn't seem like a great solution to the problem. The universalist solution is that God eradicates evil by healing creation. And therefore, once the, the wound is healed, there is no wound there. There is right. no wound left. So that seems to me to make, it doesn't explain why God allows evil, but it, it means that I can live with it because I have something to hope for rather than the utter devastating hopelessness of the traditional view in which evil exists forever. And not only that, uh, but suffering of my loved ones. And not, right. you know, suffering of people who, who God calls me to love, they will, um, without any hope of redemption, they will be cut off from God and from the source of life and hope forever. I mean, that diminishes me mm-hmm. <laughs> and it diminishes God. What, how this helps with the problem of evil, I'm a bit stuck. I think universalism makes the problem of evil much, much easier to yes. deal with. Well, I would agree. Now, you don't go into this con- this next concern in your article, um, but but McClyman, in his book, does raise concerns about Christian universalism and the uh, supposed condemnation of origin at the Fifth Ecumenical Council in 553. So could you comment on Christian universalism and the uh, Fifth Ecumenical Council. Yes, so this is this is something that wouldn't worry some Christians, um, but it, but for those Christians who take the tradition seriously, and I do, um, this would be an issue of some concern. So this is a, a, a council of the church, and and uh, church leaders, and um, allegedly they condemned universalism, and so this would then make it unorthodox. Now, this issue, the best thing I could do really is point your listeners to a fantastic article on the blog of Al Kimmel, Eclectic Orthodoxy, and he has a really good article on this called Did the Fifth Ecumenical Council Condemn Universal Salvation? Um, And and that, to my mind, is the sort of most helpful thing um, Mm -hmm. to read on this. But a few very quick thoughts about it. Um, The first thing is this council, which takes place in the 6th century, is some hundreds of years after the time of origin. And what you find is that 
at the end of the official proceedings of the council, there's a little appendix in which there are some condemnations of various things, One uh, among them this belief in apocatastasis, the restoration of all things. So what seems clear when you look at all of these condemnations is that what is being condemned is a particular system a configuration in which you've got the pre-existence of souls and and so on and apocatastasis tied in with that whole network what is being condemned there is not universalism as such but a particular way of understanding universalism and this was an understanding that wasn't origin's own and it wasn't that of gregory of nyssa but it was a version that you found among some extremist or more extreme followers of origin uh, particularly in some Palestinian monasteries in the 6th century. And this provoked a response. So the first thing to say is what's being responded to is not origin as such or universalism as such, but a particular version of universalism and a particular extremist understanding of origin that you found at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if uh, it was a part of an ecumenical council, it wouldn't rule out universalism. It doesn't It doesn't make, for example, Gregory of Nyssa a heretic because Gregory didn't hold that network. He didn't believe in the pre-existence of souls and so on. Um, but the other thing to say is um, the status of these anathemas or these uh, curses at the end of the document is somewhat ambiguous. And many patristic scholars argue that they're not actually part of the proceedings of the council at all. They've been tacked on. Um, it might be that they were came out of a meeting that took place before the council convened uh, of some of the bishops who'd arrived early, and Justinian, who was the emperor who'd called the, the conference, was very keen to get some of this stuff through. And it might be that some of their discussions and things were appended to the end of the ecumenical council, but that wouldn't give them the status of an ecumenical document. Uh, so there is a lot of lack of clarity to put it mildly, as to whether these anathemas even count as part of the the Fifth Ecumenical Council. Uh, It's not my area, but I think the most helpful thing to read about that, if it worries you, is um, the blog post I mentioned. Well, one, what I'd like to do now is to is to turn towards uh, some more concerns that McClyman has raised. He he has done a um, made a presentation a couple of years ago at um, a forum called Faith Ascent, and it's a student ministry whose mission is to keep college students from abandoning their beliefs and disengaging from the church. And there's a video of this presentation that's online. And so from that video, in that video, I thought that was helpful because we can really see some of the basic charges that McClyman was warning these university students about. So I thought we would just go through some of these pretty quickly here. Uh, Charge number one that McClyman makes is that since a Christian universalist must believe in the salvation of all rational beings, that would mean a Christian universalist would have to believe in the salvation of the demons and the devil himself. So how do you respond to this? Hmm. Well, they wouldn't. Okay, uh, a few thoughts. Um, They wouldn't have to. Uh, In fact, you know, you can find Christian universalists in history who believed in the salvation of all humans, but not the salvation of the devil and so on. Um, however, if you did 
think, uh, and I think, uh, believe in the salvation of all rational beings, then there's another issue, and that is, it depends what you, what do you mean by the devil? Um, so if the devil is a fallen angel, which is an ancient Christian view, I mean, it's not taught in scripture as such, but it was, um, you, you find it in the second and third centuries, and it became the standard view that Christians just assume. Mm-hmm. And I think you can make a case for it. Um, but it's not clearly taught in scripture. I mean, the biblical text that they usually used aren't actually talking about the devil. So it is a bit ambiguous. However, um, if the devil is a fallen angel that was made by God to be good and uh, and fell, then, um, yeah, I think he you could make a case for the salvation of the devil. And there are Christian universalists who have done that. Um, Origen, tentatively, um, Gregory of Nyssa, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and even people like Elhanan Winchester, although he bends over backwards to say it'll be like millennia and millennia and millennia, you know, before the devil, it'll be like the last thing that happens before uh, the devil finally breaks. Or it might be that you think that the devil isn't an individual um, personal being, but, and this is putting it crudely, um, maybe a symbol of evil. So supposing that the devil was a symbol of evil, um, in that case, then no, the devil can't be saved because evil can't be saved. Creation is healed and evil is eradicated. So on that understanding of the devil, the devil wouldn't be saved by universalism in universal salvation um, because the devil isn't a creature as such. Um, I do find that view quite attractive myself, uh, you know, that the, the powers of darkness are sort of parasitic. They have a reality that goes beyond individual humans. We don't make them up. Evil is very real and it's bigger than any individual, but evil is somehow perhaps generated through human sin and so on. So perhaps we might think of the devil as something that will be eradicated once uh, creation is saved. So it really depends what you mean. If if you think the devil is an individual being, then you go a different route or route, as you might mm-hmm. say. Yeah. <laughs> okay, charge number two that McClyman brings is that universalism in proclaiming that all will finally be saved because of God's prior decision undercuts the urgency that we have to make our own decision to respond and repent and have faith now. And this in turn undercuts the urgency of evangelism. Mm-hmm. So what would you say to that? Um, well, so for Christian universalists, salvation is is in Christ. It's something that God achieves for us and creation in Christ. And that if we're going to participate in that and share in that salvation, that still requires a response from us, a turning from sin, submitting to Christ in faith and obedience. So our response to the gospel is uh, essential to sharing in that salvation. I mean, you can't talk about being saved if you're clearly still living in sin. You haven't yet been saved. You're not experienced. Mm -hmm. Even if it's still true that Christ has died and been raised for you and your salvation is guaranteed by that, it doesn't mean that you're yet participating in it. So any universalism that undercuts the need to respond to Christ is a warped um, universalism, not, but it's not the kind that you find. Um, so in the lecture you mentioned that, that, that these questions come from, um, 
Michael talks about these views where, you know, you sin, it doesn't matter what you do because Christ died for you and it's grace. So, it's you know, go ahead and sin and, and all that. It doesn't really matter. It's irrelevant. But that, I mean, that is just so out of sync with the history of Christian universalism. I mean, you can't look at these folk like Origen or Gregory or any other historical Christian universalists and see that they are anything other than utterly consumed with pursuing holiness. Um, it really, really matters to them. And likewise, um, proclaiming the gospel. To, uh, to mention another guy, Elhanan Winchester, who I've mentioned before, he was a revivalist preacher. I mean, he's got a great sermon on the importance of the evangelist. Uh, and he would go around preaching the gospel and seeing uh, people become um, believers. So salvation, mm -hmm. the gospel demands a response and salvation, participating in salvation depends on it. And if we don't respond, there are consequences and bad ones. Um, the Bible is quite clear about that. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not sure the best illustration. To, imagine you live uh, somewhere, you live in San Francisco, and God says, I want you to go to London, because um, that's where everyone should go, London, you see. And God, maybe God knows that in the end, he will get you to London. But he tells you, come now. And he says, there's a storm coming. Leave San Francisco now. And you don't. And then you experience the storm. There are consequences. And then God says, go now. And you don't go. And there's an earthquake. And then says, God says, go now. And you don't. And there's an economic crash or whatever. Or you lose your house or your family and so on. So we make choices and our choices have consequences. And they're ones that could have been avoided if we had responded to the gospel, resisting the gospel then has mm -hmm. consequences in this life and in the next life. Um, that is perfectly compatible with the belief that in the end, God will bring all people to the goal for which he created them. Okay, another charge that uh, McClyman makes is that universalism gives people a false hope that they will have unlimited chances for salvation in eternity, whereas the Bible makes no such promise. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, that argument only works if universalism is wrong. I mean, it's, it's a false hope. <laughs> and so he doesn't believe it. So he thinks it's a false hope. I, I don't think it is a false hope. So he's begging the question. But, I mean, that aside, um, what? let me say this. I very rarely bring up the issue of universal salvation if I'm talking to someone who's not a believer about the gospel. Um, because the gospel presents us with a choice. We face life or death. Choose life is the call of the gospel. And that life is found in Christ. Now, we, the universalist in me, which is very deeply ingrained, believes that this person in the end will choose Christ and will choose life. Um, but they don't need to know that. <laughs> and it might actually, depends on the context, but it might actually in this particular context, and certainly a lot of the early Christians believe this, um, put them off choosing life if they thought, oh, I could choose whatever. They're not spiritually mature enough to handle it. Now, I'm not sure that's right, but there are contexts in which it's the case. Um, so God doesn't mitigate the warnings about the dangers of death. That is the reality. If you choose to reject Christ, you're embracing death and sin, and it corrupts and it destroys lives and has implications in this life and the next. So um, you wouldn't even need to mention universalism 
to be a universalist. Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't be giving anyone false hope. You're just saying, here is an offer of life that will transform you. And so where would you find... Where would you find evidence in the Bible that, that there could be hope for people even after the death of their physical body? Yeah. Um, so that's a good question. And I think there are two, uh, two approaches to this. So the first is to find texts that would directly address that issue. And the second one is to find texts that require it, uh, even though they don't explicitly teach it. So let me give you an example of what I mean. So the doctrine of the Trinity is a very important Christian doctrine. In fact, so important it's considered essential uh, for Orthodox faith, and it is biblical, but you won't find a verse that teaches it. Um, what you have is a whole bunch of texts that seem to teach different things, and the way to hold them together, the way that which they can all be held together is what the doctrine of the Trinity is. So you have texts that teach that God is one, there is one God, that the Father isn't the Son, but that the Father is God and that the Son is God, but that there's not two gods as one God and so on. So you've got all of this stuff and you think, how do we hold this together? And the doctrine of the Trinity is how we hold it together. So what we have in scripture are some texts that talk about uh, when we die, there's judgment and there's a separation of sheep from goats or wheat from weeds or, or whatever. Um, and there is a lake of fire, and there are those who go into life and those who go into punishment and so on. So you've got this stream of texts which talk about judgment, separation, punishment, and life. And on the other hand, you have another set of texts which talk about universal salvation, uh, or uh, reconciling all things through his blood shed on the cross cross, for example, is in Colossians 1. So then you think, just as we do with the Trinity, well, how do you hold these two things together? And universalists propose that we hold them together by seeing that the ultimate end of creation is where all things are reconciled and God is all in all. But prior to that, um, there is indeed a judgment and a separation and a punishment. Uh, and, you know, these are these things are both true. We don't have to choose between them. We hold them together. So one um, key biblical argument for that, what you're what you're asking, is um, we can infer from these different traditions in Scripture that if they're both true, uh, then there must be opportunities after death for people to leave, to exit from death into life. And I think um, one can then bolster that by trying to find or seeking direct text that might address it. Um, the one I talked about in the Evangelical Universalist, it comes at the end of the book of Revelation, where we have the nations and the kings of the earth who are all the way through the book of Revelation. We know who they are. They are the baddies. They are the people who re resist and reject Christ and fight against the church and so on. And here they are, uh, defeated by Christ in chapter 19, in the Armageddon and thrown into the lake of fire. And then in chapter 21, we see that the king, the nations and the kings of the earth are coming to the new Jerusalem with their robes washed in the blood of the lamb. And they're entering through these doors that are never closed mm -hmm. into this city, clearly sharing in the salvation that is in Christ. And yet, 
you know, anyone who's been reading the book up to that point ought to be a bit gobsmacked because we know exactly who these people are. All the previous reference to them uh, refer to these rebels, the, the, the Christ rejectors, the enemies of God. That's who these people are. And now we see them coming, ha having been thrown into the lake of fire, now we see them coming into the new Jerusalem. And I think this is um, at least very suggestive mm -hmm. um, that there is, you know, possibilities of salvation after death. I mean, there are texts in uh, 1 Peter that could be read that way too. Uh, you know the ones I mean. And as I've already said in the early church in the second and third centuries, that tradition continued of people being thrown into the lake of fire or thrown into Gehenna and then subsequently coming out. Mm -hmm. Those texts from 1 Peter have to do with the descent of, of Jesus to the dead. Yeah, and preaching the gospel to the dead. and. And it has to be said that quite ambiguous text uh, that the tr the church has never had a single mind on how they should be read. So I don't think I don't. So in my book, the Evangelical Universalist, I deliberately didn't even mention them. So if you look in the if there's an index, I can't remember, but they're not even referenced. Okay. <laughs> Because universalists are often accused of building their case on these dodgy texts that we're not sure what they mean. Okay, and, and it's too fragile. So I thought, well, I will build a case and not even mention them. So I was a bit distraught in one review where it says, oh, well, there you go, but it's just building a case on this uh, this dodgy text. And I thought, I didn't even mention it. Have you read the book? <laughs> what, kind of review, what kind of review is this? Um, but anyway, however, having made the case, then we can come to those texts. And I think that there is within the early church one way of reading them that is that those who had died uh, in sin in adam and who were sinners in the time of the flood and so on who were destroyed in the flood uh i've had the gospel preached to them and can respond to it and be saved well one of the things that 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 michael mccliman is concerned about and a charge that he makes is that universalism says that all will be purified by fire in the coming ages and this does away with the necessity of the cross. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things we have to be careful about then is that you, we're not, we're not saying that you can either be saved through Christ, or you can be saved through fire. <laughs> you know, by the fire, as if as if your suffering is somehow what it, what brings about your salvation. Um, the way I think about it is that. Um, the fire, the fires, which let's take them as metaphorical, okay, not literally burning bodies, but the experience of alienation from God and sin and and its corruption and what it, and the realization of what that actually means uh, mm -hmm. is experienced as as like a fire, and so um, what the fires do is they are educative. What they do is they reveal to us. Um, in fact, what they are is are experiencing a gradual revelation of the reality of sin and and how it actually isn't this wonderful thing we thought it was, this freedom, but it's slavery. And that it's the educative function of these things that throw us back towards God and his grace and towards the salvation that is found for us in Christ. And so it's not that the fire saves us 
such, the fire uh, reveals to us our condition and enables us, or is a means of grace in the end, uh, for us to turn to God and receive the salvation that's offered for us in Christ through union with him. Okay, and uh, this is another charge that McClyman makes, is that it was Origen who first defended universal salvation. He believed souls pre-existed and fell into bodies, and that this idea goes back to Plato, who thought that souls pre-exist, choose the kind of life they want to have, and then drink from the river of forgetfulness. Therefore, the idea of purgatorial cleansing for people in the afterlife doesn't arise in the Christian community until Christianity comes into Alexandria, and Origen attempts to add these ideas from pagan sources. Right, and we've, I mean, well, we hadn't mentioned Plato before, and Plato did well, <laughs> maybe. Um, yeah, I mean, I have a particular, I have a different interpretation of the story in Plato's Phaedrus, where uh, the the souls fall into embodiment. I don't think it means what people think Plato means uh, by that. But be that as it may, about Plato, he wasn't a universalist. I mean, he believed in sort of tortures after death. He didn't believe everyone would be saved. Um, and again, we've already talked about pre-existence of souls. Most Christian universalists didn't believe in it in the patristic period or since. Um, Origen is contested. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But you don't need to. So, yeah. I mean, we've already talked about that. I, yeah. I, I don't know. Okay, charge number charge number six that McClyman makes in that presentation is that in Matthew 25, in the judgment scene of the sheep and the goats, the goats are said to go into the fire prepared for the devil and his demons. And so those who go into that fire share the same destiny of the devil and his demons, which is nowhere promised to have an ultimate end in repentance and restoration. Yeah, okay. So let's, I mean, let me say this then about the devil and his demons. Um, that is true. Uh, the, there is no promise of restoration for the devil and for the devil and his demons. So I have two thought, speculative thoughts on this. And again, this is all speculation. We do not know. Um, first of all, let, maybe the, the devil is, uh, as I said, uh, a symbol of evil. So then, of course, there is no salvation for the devil. Maybe the devil is... So think about Darth Vader in the Star Wars films. And you might say um, Darth Vader dies and Anakin is saved. So Darth Vader isn't saved at the end of the third Star Wars movie, uh, The Return of the Jedi. Um, Anakin Skywalker is saved and Darth Vader dies. Um, in the way that, so a Christian would say, if anyone is in Christ as a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. You know, so we have died. The old us, the sinful us, dies, and there's new creation in Christ. So the Star Wars equivalent is Darth Vader dies, there is new creation for Anakin. But it's not that Darth Vader um, is rescued. Darth is dead. So it might be then, and this is speculation, I'm not saying this is the case. I'm just speculating. Mm -hmm. It might be that we would say um, the devil is not saved, but Lucifer is. Lucifer being the angel of light. On this is this is on the account. This is on the view that the devil is a fallen angel. So we might say the fallen angel Lucifer, who was an angel of light, 
uh, created for good things. He is saved. The devil is not. The devil is forever lost. So this is me speculating about the devil. I guess Michael's point is more to do with um, the sheep and the goat, which I argued in the Evangelical Universalist and Ilaria argued this at much greater length in her book on uh, words for a time and eternity. Uh, the the sheep and the goats, one is the sheep and the goats are not thrown into eternal life or an eternal punishment, but the life of the age to come and the punishment of the age to come, which uh, how long the life and the punishment of the age to come last is not discussed. It's not the issue. It's not what's under discussion. They are simply the life and the punishment that take place in the age to come. Um, it might be that they last forever. It might be that they don't. The, the parable's just simply not interested in that question. So I, you know, I, I certainly don't think that the sheep and the goats parable can settle this question. Uh, in fact, it's the strongest argument for eternal torment, and it doesn't do enough to establish that, because it's perfectly possible to read that parable as as saying, yeah, there's a separation, and some go to life of the age to come and some to, to the punishment of the age to come. And they don't have to be equivalent in length. Theologically speaking, um, the life of the age to come is eternal, of course, because it's a participation in Christ's eternal life. Christ is eternal. And the life of the age to come is sharing in his life. The punishment of the age to come doesn't have those kind of theological groundings. It's not a participation in what the eternal punishment of Christ. I don't know. I mean, I don't know quite how you'd construe it, but it just doesn't, it doesn't work like that. But, but again, the parable is just simply not addressing those issues, and we're pushing it a bit further than it wants to go when we try and get it to answer those questions. It's, uh, it's doing something quite different, which is posing a challenge to us about how we treat other people, which is interesting uh, because that never seems to come up when people discuss hell. You start, you know, there's no discussion about, oh, if you believe in Jesus, it's <laughs> about how you treat the poor and the hungry and the naked. Nobody mentions that. Right. Well, in the in the judgment scene in Matthew 25, the goats go into this uh, fire. But as you point out in the book of Revelation, the devil, along with all the unrighteous, is cast into the lake of fire. But then we see the unrighteous at the some the unrighteous at the city gates. We don't see the devil necessarily at the city gates. So that would be right. an example of where. Yeah, that's a good point. I like that. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> yeah, that, that that is a good point. So yes, in Revelation you have a, a sort of analogous situation. The devil is thrown in and is tormented forever and ever. It says uh, in the lake of fire. And it's the same lake of fire that these others, unrighteous humans, are thrown into. And yet we see them redeemed in the end and coming as nations. To, um, and that, that would be the case irrespective of whether or not the devil stays in. Because, of course, this was not a lake of fire prepared for humans anyway. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. So it's not where God, it's not something God made as a destiny for human beings. One of the, uh, I think we're, we're, we're getting to the end of his, uh, we have a couple more here to go. Uh, one charge is that, uh, that McClyman makes is that universalism does not take seriously the freedom of God's creatures to harden their hearts against God and thereby robs people of their freedom. Right, um, which is a common argument. I mean, I'm a little bit surprised 
that Michael makes it. I mean, in the lecture you mentioned, he says he believes in predetermination, that that um, God's predestination of all things and human choices cohere uh, in the end. And so our free choices and are, you know, compatible with God determining everything that happens. So presumably he thinks that God could choose to save everyone and predetermine everyone to be saved and everybody will freely choose to be saved and that would be perfectly compatible on his view. So I'm surprised that he would say that because it's not consistent with his own view about God's sovereignty and human freedom. And if I understand his view right, I mean, that's what I took him to be saying when he talked about uh, predetermination and predestination. I I discuss human freedom um, at some length in the Evangelical Universalist, and I argue there that it is compatible with free will. Um, it's compatible with free will on several different definitions of human freedom. Um, and I look at, I look at, what what are called compatibilist versions, which argue that human freedom is compatible with determinism. And I say, well, if that's the correct view, that's, that fits with universalism because God can determine that everyone will freely choose to respond to the gospel and they will. Um, or if you don't think that view is right and you think that God can't determine our choices and that, that the sort of libertarian view of freedom, I argued similarly that even that is compatible with universalism. And the people, maybe just to give a, a, a quick example and point you in a direction here, the person who influenced me here most was Thomas Talbot, a philosopher. And, um, you know, he gives, he talks a lot about freedom and, and um, universalism. And he gives the example of a, a child who puts their hand in a fire um, and whether this is a free choice. And he says, supposing that the child has no reason whatsoever to put their hand in the fire, and in fact, has every reason not to, because it really hurts. Um, and then you see the child thrust their hand into the fire and hold it there, screaming all the while. Um, would you think to yourself, well, that's just the child exercising their freedom? You think, no, that's not freedom. There's something, there's either something compelling them, maybe they're possessed or something, or there's, or, or there's some mental problem that's compelling them to do this because because freedom requires a certain amount of a certain place for rationality and if you have no reason to do something and every reason not to you won't freely choose to do it now in the case of the gospel because we're made by god and for god our hearts are restless until they find rest in god i mean we cannot feel at home in our humanity out of relationship with god and so the gospel, if we could truly perceive what it was, we have every reason, the very deepest depths of our being are yearning for this. Uh, we have every reason to accept it and no reason to reject it because we're rejecting the very truth and depths of who we are and embracing something that is our own negation. So it would make no sense for somebody to freely reject the gospel if they could see clearly the choice they were making. Now, of course, we can't um, and we don't. We perceive things in very warped and twisted ways. But to that extent, um, our choices are limited in their freedom because they're based on misinformation or distorted desires or so on. They're more like um, people who are addicted to drugs. And so God can free our wills to choose the right thing by revealing to us the truth of our choices bit by bit so that we gradually get a clearer vision of 
what it is we're choosing. And as the choice becomes clearer to us, God's not compelling us to do anything in any, in any way other than that the truth itself has its own compulsion, its own attraction. And because of the kinds of creatures we are, uh, we're attracted to that. And God then needs to educate us and open our hearts and free us from illusions and compulsions, sinful compulsions, and bring us to a place where we're able to freely choose the gospel. And God can do that for everyone without forcing anyone to do anything against their will. So universalism does not require God to make anyone do anything they don't want to do. God is perfectly capable of soliciting the free choice and acceptance of all his creatures um, without doing that. And that is what we believe God will do. What I'd like to do now is kind of start bringing this uh, interview to a close. We've been we've been going for a good while now, and I appreciate your time. But I think we're at an interesting point because uh, it it really goes to your personal story because you had been reading a Christian philosopher William Lane Craig, who this was years ago, who was making uh, an argument that it was possible for God to preserve free will and still to save everybody, but then, but then he ultimately said that even though it's possible, it's not what God has chosen to do because God has other things that are more pressing, but that you were, you got to thinking about that and it just didn't sit well with you. And you were in a church service and you were, found yourself unable to, to, to worship, which is ironic because I think you, at that point, you'd even written a, a, a book about the importance of worshiping father, son, and Trinity in church. And so here was one of the most important things to you was worship, but you found yourself unable to to sing. Could you just tell us a little bit about that moment? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, William Lane Craig's view is, is slightly different from um, what you said, but that doesn't really matter because the point I got to, um, I wasn't satisfied with what he said. I He persuaded me that God could save everyone without violating their free will. And I didn't believe God would save everyone, you see, because at that point, universalism, I just thought was obviously false. It couldn't, it just didn't even cross my mind as a possibility. And so I just took it as given that, of course, God doesn't save everyone. And so, but I'd come to the point of, of thinking, but God could have done. And he could have done. I always said God wants to, but he can't because he has to give us freedom and we're not robots and, and all that kind of thing. Um, and I got to the point of thinking, you know, God God could do it without making us robots. God could do it while respecting our freedom. Uh, maybe not before we die, but in the end, unless he takes away our opportunities to make choices after we die so that God, God only doesn't save everyone by taking away their choice. You know, God stops our choices when we die and that's it. Even if we're going, please, I was wrong, save me. God's like tough, you know, you had your chance. Um, and you're not getting any more. So I got to this point of then thinking God could save everyone but doesn't want to. And then I thought, well, how, uh, what, what do I mean when I say God loves people? Then? I mean, what kind of love is that? I mean, I, even I love people more than that. And God's love's got to be better than mine. Mm-hmm. So I, I found it really deeply distressing because it, because it was starting to undermine some of the very deepest beliefs I had about God. And I just, yeah, like you say, I got to this point where I thought I don't know whether I can 
I mean, I will worship God because it's what I do. It's 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 a choice. It's a commitment I made to follow Jesus, and I and I know that somehow it makes sense, but it didn't feel like it did, and that was really what set me or opened me up to considering the possibility of universalism. Eventually, when I came across an argument that I to, which surprised me as actually being quite orthodox and some good biblical arguments in it. I hadn't expected that. And that, from Thomas Talbot, that was what really started me thinking, well, maybe this could be true. I ought to look into it. Well, I think that one of the things that's so important about your story and your scholarship is that I think it it happens to a lot of people that for one reason or another, we are drawn to Christ and to the life that he offers. And we go down that path but then we start asking deeper and deeper questions and we start engaging with the Bible at deeper levels. And, and what can happen is we get to the point where we can't mm. put it all together yeah. anymore. Mm. And, uh, and I think that that's one of the reasons that people are sort of against, well, you shouldn't study too much. You shouldn't ask too many questions, you know, cause you'll, you'll study yourself out of this or you think you will think yourself mm. out of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that no, if you keep on going and you go down this path and study and reflection that, that you can find a, um, a vision of the Christian faith from the earliest centuries of the church. That's biblically, that's biblically grounded. And, um, and when you get this vision, you know, you can't help but sing. Mm. And mm-hmm. it's, yeah. such a, and yeah. it's, and it's, it really makes worship and evangelism and the desire to share this good news, really wonderful. And, and so, and it's led you to want to uh, be, you know, instead of leading you out of the church, it's led you to want to pursue ordination in the church to be able to share this. There's not just some kind of philosophical, theological opinion that you've reached, but to also, but to be able to share it as a, as an ordained, as an ordained minister from uh, from your pers- you know from your perspective to let people know there's a place for them for this vision and this voice in the church that's right because it you know so in our church we affirm the creeds the apostles creed and the nicene creed and so on and it's it's perfectly compatible with all of this in fact i would argue as i mentioned earlier that it it, it fits better than eternal hell Mm-hmm. You know, then because you don't get eternal hell in the creeds, you get the life of the world to come, but you don't get anything about eternal torment. Um, I mean, what you said just reminded me of the um, the final paragraph of the Evangelical Universalist, um, which I hadn't thought about for a long time. But do you mind if I just read you the? No, it'd be a nice way to kind of conclude things. Um, so this was the the ending paragraph to the book. Um, in conclusion, let me ask you to hold in your mind traditional, the traditional Christian vision of the future, in which many, perhaps the majority of humanity, are excluded from salvation forever. Alongside that, hold the universalist vision in which God achieves his loving purpose of redeeming the whole creation. Which vision has the strongest view of divine love? Which story has the most powerful narrative of God's victory over evil? Which picture lifts the atoning efficacy of the cross of Christ to the greatest heights? Which perspective best emphasizes the triumph of grace over sin? Which view most inspires worship and love of God, bringing him honor and glory? Which has the most satisfactory understanding of divine wrath? 
Which narrative inspires hope in the human spirit? To my mind, the answer to all these questions is clear, and that is why I am a Christian universalist. I wrote that in 2005, I think, and um, I can't remember. I think so. And I still think exactly the same. <laughs> yeah, well, that's been encouraging to me, too, is that, you know, you have found this, this vision of the Christian faith, and it has, it seems to me, it has planted you even more firmly in the life of the church and within the historic Christian tradition. You understand, well, I hold a view that maybe is in the minority today, but you know, there are times in the history of the church when it was more popular, and and it's a good way to be Christian, and and it's good to let people know about this. And so, that's one of the things I appreciate about you is that you you haven't felt the need to oh I've got this vision of universalism, so I'm going to wander off beyond the church now. It's like no, no. I'm no. going to I'm going to stay firmly planted within the historic confession of the church, but I'm just going to let people know that there's room for this hope, this universalist understanding and hope within this historic tradition and, and invite them to become a part of it. Yeah, that's right. I talk about universalism existing between heresy and dogma. So it's not something, it's not heretical. It's not something the church has excluded. And it's not dogma. That is to say, it's not something the church has requ requires for orthodox faith. Um, but it's something that is um, permitted within the bounds of um, traditional uh, Christian Orthodox faith. At least that's what I've been seeking to to argue. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and you're right. It, it is it is it more tolerated than it was. And I think the, in the new creation, of course, even Michael will agree with it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, you know, he, either that or I'll be in big trouble with God. But I, you know, I I don't think so. Uh, God will be all in all. That well, is what I want on my gravestone. So if, if anyone ever asks you what I want on my gravestone, that is it. God will be all in all. First Corinthians, First Corinthians 15, 28, I believe. 15, 28. It inspires my life. It is the motif of my life. It is what drives me. God will be all in all. And the church is, the church, broken and sinful as it is, and deeply disappointing and heartbreaking as it often is, um, it is still loved by God and pivotal to his purposes. God uses jars of clay. And sometimes we're painfully aware of how jarry of clay we are. But um, this this is the broken vessel that God uses for his purposes. Well, God bless so I'm, you. I'm going to stick with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, God bless you in your ministry in the church and in your continued work um, in bringing great scholarship to us through uh, through Whitfenstock, and we're always looking forward to the new titles that that you're helping to to bring out into the world. So God bless you, Robin Perry. Have a good rest of your day. Okay. Thank you, David, All and right. also with you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.